Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario's staffing crisis in hospitals is hitting an all-time high as the Omicron variant continues to spread across the country. How can the government navigate through this crisis? Well, we'll talk about it. Economists say COVID-19 is just one of five potential unknowns that could rock Canadian economic forecasts for 2022. Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business, joins us with the details. And the Prime Minister is pushing ahead with a vaccine mandate for international truckers, despite pressure from critics saying that it will exacerbate driver shortages and price increases. Is this decision going to cause more harm than good? It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk a little bit about what's going to be happening vis-a-vis the healthcare system. Uh, and we already know right now that, first of all, there are shortages right now. Nurses, doctors, uh, healthcare workers of all kinds, including in long-term care facilities, by the way, are overworked, overtaxed, and very, very frustrated. And they're getting sick. I mean, they're working with people who are dealing with COVID and, and they're getting ill themselves and having to stay home because of that. And it's causing a crisis. Well, there are demands now for the immediate recall of the legislature to try to deal with a crisis in health care. Uh, this is coming from three Ontario opposition leaders, as well as labor leaders, including Michael Hurley, who is the president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. Today, we're calling on the Ontario government to return to the front lines, recall the legislature, put in place a real plan to staff up in healthcare in this province, lead as Quebec has done by creating thousands of full-time, decently paying jobs, repeal Bill 124, which dooms healthcare workers and hundreds of thousands of other frontline workers to real wage cuts. Pretty long list there. Is it going to be effective? And, and how can we deal with this? Uh, this is not something that's going to require long-term solutions. Uh, we need something to be happening on this yesterday. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Nancy Walton. Uh, Dr. Walton is the director of the Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing and an associate dean at Ryerson University, also the deputy chair of the Health Canada Research Ethics Board. Doctor, pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Nice to be here. As a, I guess another doctor of these unintended consequences that we've talked about here in the healthcare field. I mean, we've, we've, uh, I think, rightly called these people our healthcare heroes because of the dedication and the work that they've done. Uh, they're getting sick. They're getting tired. They're getting exhausted because of the shifts they're putting in right now. Uh, when we talk about the numbers and uh, the impact this is having on hospitals and on ICUs, are we forgetting, doctor, about the impact it's having on the people that staff those facilities? I, I think we're not, well, I think that there's lots of evidence that the government might be forgetting about it, but I think, um, you know, the general public at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, we're out uh, calling our nurses and doctors, healthcare heroes. And now people are just, um, I think people are, as you said, tired. People are um, really not work. They're working on very short reserves and they've lost this sort of empathy. I mean, they're, everybody's saying, you know, teachers and nurses, they're really important. Uh, but um, short of actually having that demonstrated by the government, I think it feels kind of empty to uh, many of the healthcare professionals who, as you said, are, you know, powering through this uh, unrelenting pandemic. And we're already dealing with shortages before that. We're already dealing with under being under-resourced and undervalued well before COVID. And this has served to highlight and exacerbate it. Um, and so I think, you know, at this point, there needs to be some real sustainable investments in healthcare to, to demonstrate by the government that they do value these uh, healthcare professionals, not just talking about it, but doing something. We've had many discussions over the years about healthcare in, in Ontario and Canada, for that matter, too. 
And, and I think we had to open our eyes, Doctor, to an awful lot of realities here. I mean, I think for many, many years, Canadians, uh, we're, we're boasting that, you know, we've got the best healthcare system in the world. You know, we, we had Medicare back in the mid-60s, and, uh, you know, it, it's not free, although some people still seem to think it is. Uh, but there were cracks in this, and we knew that it wasn't as good as, as it used to be, and that, that the government was not keeping up with the demand. Uh, I guess this pandemic has really shone the light on, on an existing problem, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And, uh, you know, yes, we have, compared to many other healthcare systems, there are lots of strengths with the Canadian system. But there's there are, you know, real uh, challenges that I don't think uh, governments, whether you're talking federal governments or provincial and territorial governments who have more jurisdiction over healthcare, have taken, you know, appreciable steps to address. And, and those cracks that you've called it, we've known about for a long time. We've known that across Canada, we have um, fewer acute care beds per capita than many other places. We've always known in many areas there's a shortage of nurses. There's a shortage of nurses in certain particular areas in healthcare. Um, our long-term care uh, system needs to, you know, continue to be overhauled. And as you said, yes, COVID has really demonstrated that has really brought it to light for many people who who might not have been able to see that or who might be in some you know in denial that that there are problems in the healthcare system and, and governments may be uncomfortable for us to bring this up but it's, it's it's something that has to be talked about past governments of of all political stripes by the way i, I think doctor have been guilty of, of looking at healthcare and said look come on we really don't need that many nurses we really don't need to graduate that many doctors come on we can save a few bucks if we just trim here and trim here uh, they've yeah. cut budgets to hospitals, to primary care facilities for time and time. How many years in a row have they done that right now? And and that's why, as you say, it manifests itself in fewer beds, uh, fewer nurses, uh, fewer people in critical care situations. And I guess it was all done on the premise that, oh, we're never going to have a pandemic. It's never going to happen to us. Well, boom, here we are. And, and you know, it's, it's really just, I guess, Sean, that we have not paid the attention to this that I think we had to over the years. Yeah, and I and you know a couple of things from what you said there. One is when we think about healthcare beds and beds in hospitals, which you know uh, governments talk about, lots of people talk about. Uh, a bed is not <laughs> all you need in the hospital. You know, you can have a nice uh, high tech bed <laughs> with all the buttons in any kind of healthcare institution without a nurse at that bedside, without a nurse at the you know who can come when you ring the bell, without uh, uh, a medical team, without you know all the kinds of people that you need. Um, the bed is really um, not very valuable. So adding, you know, beds, adding units, uh, opening new institutions without the health human resources behind it is not something that, uh, you know, is, is very meaningful. And the other piece is that, you know, we do tend to focus a lot on acute care. So hospitals and beds in hospitals. And of course, we're also focused on that in COVID. What are our hospital occupancy rates and IC rates? But we also need to remember that there's uh, shortages of nurses in all kinds of areas. So, you know, home care, which is really important to keep people in their homes, whether they're well or not well, to keep them supported if they want to be in their homes, in long-term care, in public health. You know, we have nurses who work in remote and rural communities, um, and we have shortages there. So, you know, there's there's shortages across the system. Um, we tend to focus on acute care and beds because that's something that you know, to be fair, governments can say, hey, we added, you know, a new hospital in this sector, we added, you know, this, this many beds. Um, but without the people and without the people feeling supported, trained, resourced, um, those beds are, are, are not really doing much. 
I, I always relate the story. This is going back a few years when I served on the District Health Council in the Hamilton area. And uh, the government of the day, a provincial government of the day, made the big announcement that they were funding money for an MRI machine for, I think it was Hamilton General Hospital. And everybody went, this is great. And I said, well, where's the money for the staffing? Oh, well, it's not included. Which means the thing is going to sit there empty an awful lot of the time because there's nobody there to run the darn thing. Uh, you know, governments have to understand that there's, there's got to be a whole package here. And I, I guess, you know, in, in, in the past, they have not done that. And we've kind of shrugged our shoulders and said, isn't that awful? Uh, never really understanding that as soon as it's going to be an immense pressure on a system like we have right now, uh, we're saying, hey, what's gone on here? Well, I'm not suggesting we're all complicit in this, but we should have been yelling about this a lot longer and a lot louder than we have over the years. Yeah, I, you know, one thing to note, too, is that many people are, um, you know, if we're talking pre-COVID, <laughs> um, you know, there still are people getting services. So people are presenting to emergency rooms or to their um, you know, family practice uh, to their family doctor, or their nurse practitioner, and they're getting <clears throat> the services they need. Um, they might have to wait here and there, but they're getting them and they, they see waits as reasonable. Um, most people understand that in a system, you're going to have cues and waits and that they're, you know, as long as they're reasonable, it's, it's usually well accepted. But I think as soon as you add a little bit of pressure into that system and COVID added a whole bunch of pressure into that system, then people see, oh, wait a second, <laughs> you know, y y yes, the system worked well before. I never asked any questions because it worked fine for me or it worked fine for my elderly mother or, you know, my sick child. Um, but now that the system has this kind of pressure and you're seeing that and people are experiencing it um, and it becomes a little more personal, then they're saying, like you said, hey, maybe I should have, you know, recognized this before. Um, so, I mean, one very small good thing is that people really are now um, very aware of the value of the nurse at the bedside, the nurse in the home, the nurse in the public health unit, the nurse giving them their vaccine. And what would happen if those nurses aren't there? And, you know, we're seeing really serious and severe staff shortages. So that, that idea of the nurse not being there is a reality. Uh, and it's, you know, that's not going away until there's some real action, I'd say. Well, and with so many other situations, what we need to do is we listen to stories. I mean, it's one thing to look at a statistic and said that, okay, you know, okay, there's a reduction in numbers here and the nurses are, 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 are flaming out now because of this. But then you listen to some of the stories. I mean, I have a dear friend right now who's, well, not sleeping much these days. Uh, he got told by his cardiologist that he's, he needs to have this serious angiogram. I guess it's a test that has to be done. It's been canceled uh, because of what's going on right now. Now, he does, is, is this serious? Is there a blockage? You don't know. Uh, you know, and then you've got the other people that have had surgeries that have been delayed because of this. I mean, those are real human stories of people that, are, that need assistance right now and simply can't get it uh, because of the pressures on the system. Yeah. And I think any nurse will tell you actually that listening to people's stories is a key part of, of uh, what nurses do and being able to respond to them individually. So I think, yes, those stories are really resonating with people who are saying, you know, wow, if that was me, how would I feel? Um, and many people are experiencing it. There's lots and lots of procedures and surgeries and therapies that can't just wait forever. You know, you, you can't just put it off indefinitely. Um, and lots of people living in pain or in chronicity who um, could have a solution, but of course it's being put off um, because of the pressure on the system. Um, I think also it's important to listen to nurses' stories. I mean, you know, some of the nurses who are speaking out right now and physicians and other healthcare providers, respiratory therapists, you know, 
they're really telling stories about what their work is like. And I think, you know, many people, it might be very hard to hear some of those stories, but understanding just what it's like to work one shift, 10 shifts, two years of shifts in COVID is really something I think um, that we need to be paying uh, as much attention to as possible. We could probably spend the next three hours talking about possible solutions here. We only have a couple of minutes left, Doctor, but let's let's go down that road at least a little bit anyway. Uh, I know the government's announced that they're going to try to hire and train more people for nursing over the next three to five years, which is cold comfort, I guess, to the people that are in facilities right now. Uh, we also know that uh, there's, there's a great deal of concern about internationally trained nurses that can't seem to uh, get the proper qualifications to, to start working here in Ontario. Uh, I, I don't think there's any one solution, but where can we begin to try to, to, to deal with this problem in immediate fashion? Well, you're right that there isn't sort of an immediate solution. Um, I think there needs to be long-term sustainable investments in healthcare and in salaries for nurses. I think one of the things that many advocates have been calling for is repealing Bill uh, 124 in Ontario. I think internationally educated nurses are a great investment. Um, I don't think necessarily expediting all that process is the solution. I think where it can be expedited, it should be. And those internationally educated nurses should be at the bedside or in community care or wherever they should be uh, able to practice um, as quickly as possible with as few hoops to jump through. Um, and there are parts of that process that can be expedited. As far as opening you know, new opportunities, there's unfilled vacancies everywhere right now in nursing. So you need to create better working environments. You need to create environments where nurses feel valued, where there's enough staff for them to do the work that they feel is important and they need to do. Um, you know, not to be calling them in on vacation days, not to be asking them to stay an extra four hours, um, you know, coming in when they're feeling sick, that sort of thing. It, you know, without creating better work environments, any solution you have to put more people in the system isn't is going to fail because you're going to put more people in the system who are going to be just as unsupported as the ones who are already there and you're going to still see attrition you're going to still see nurses not only leaving their jobs but leaving the profession so until you really create you have investments to create better working environments for nurses with all those kinds of things that you know many people are talking about you're still going to see attrition no matter how many people you pour into the system from the other other direction and I, I hate to think the governments are looking at the bottom line and saying, well, you know, there are only so many dollars out there. I mean, this, this is a crisis situation, and they have to address this. And, and as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this is really addressing a problem that, that was in existence long before uh, the COVID uh, pandemic started. But uh, like so many other things, I guess, an awful lot of us, doctor, I guess, get busy in our lives, and we don't think much or we don't pay much attention to the healthcare system until somebody we love needs it. And then all of a sudden we see the, the, the weaknesses and we see those cracks that we talked about and say, when are you going to do something about it? Governments respond to public pressure. And I'd like to think that, that as, as a result of what's happened over the last two years, uh, we're as a public are going to be a little more cognizant of this. I would hope so. Um, I, you know, and I think there's lots of people can do and just talking about these things and lobbying and talking to their, you know, local constituency, you know, <laughs> I think you're one thing that's very clear and you're very right about it is that we don't really think about healthcare till we need it. And then we want it. And then we want it right away. And we want good quality care and we want people to answer our questions and we want things to be in place for the next step and whatever's going on. Um, you know, so I, I think if people can just um, imagine, or many people don't have to imagine they're in the middle of it, think about 
you know, more than on a need to basis. Think about people around them, whether it's not their family, their neighbors, their friends who need um, specific kinds of health care. And think about how you'd advocate for that. You know, just voices advocating for nursing and for uh, better conditions for healthcare professionals across the board is, you know, important um, when there's an upcoming election, <laughs> that sort of thing. This is something that should be on the on the front of all the politicians' uh, uh, campaigns for an upcoming election. This is not something that should be put in a background uh, at this point. Absolutely. Well, hopefully this conversation is going to be at least a catalyst for the uh, the dialogue that has to come. Doctor, a pleasure having you on the program today. Thank you so much. Uh, continued uh, good luck with the work that you were doing at Ryerson, and hopefully we can get governments to start paying attention. Thanks again for today. Thanks, Bill. A pleasure to talk to you. Take care. You too. Dr. Nancy Walton uh, from the uh, Daphne Cockwell School of Nursing and Associate Dean at Ryerson University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, uh, yet another wave uh, of Omicron and the numbers are up, as you just heard on the news uh, here in Ontario. And uh, that's a concern. What kind of an impact is this going to have on, on the economy in 2022? Uh, there were some pretty positive signs a, a couple of weeks ago about uh, new job figures and, and new jobs being created and and also about, uh, well, you know, the growth rate for the economy. Uh, people are starting to temper their enthusiasm, I think, because of some of these ongoing problems. So what's 2022 going to look like and what are the factors that uh, are going to determine just what our economy is going to look like? Uh, interesting report in the uh, Financial Post about that. And to talk about this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program. Uh, Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Uh, Marvin, always a pleasure. Happy New Year. Good to have you with us again. Happy New Year to you, Bill, and to all your listeners. Well, are, are you are you bullish or uh, <laughs> a little apprehensive about what's going to happen in 2022? This is a, a very changing landscape, isn't it? Sure. Well, by nature, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, so I am optimistic. I, and, and let me just temper that by saying cautiously optimistic because there's something that we cannot control, and that, of course, is COVID. There seems to be a new variant of COVID that appears roughly every six to eight weeks. Omicron appeared at the end of November. That kind of tells me there could be another variant any day now. And we still have Greek letters unused, pi, rho, sigma, tau. We can go on. Fortunately, of the 12 variants that have appeared, 10 of them have been less uh, contagious and creating less severe symptoms. Uh, Omicron, on the other hand, and Delta happen to be two of the ones that went the other direction. Having said that to you, everything I see says that when you allow the economy to be the economy, in other words, you lift restrictions, you lift lockdowns, you just say to consumers and businesses, go be who you are, the economy bounces back. And you alluded to job numbers. Just on Friday, we got the job numbers for the month of December. Now, those were tabulated the week of December the 5th. That was before Omicron had much impact on things. But when you looked at it, the employment rate was down to 5.9%. To take us back pre-pandemic, February of 2020, Canada's jobless rate, 5.7%. And if you look at the total number of people working, we actually are now employing more than 250,000 more people in the economy than we did pre-pandemic. So when you let the restrictions go, it bounces back. I say that to you knowing that when we get the January data, 
which is probably being tabulated this week um, because of Omicron. No, the numbers are going to go in the wrong direction for a month. But the belief is that we are getting on top of this disease. I know you wouldn't know this based on the day-to-day case numbers, but, you know, this may be its last big hurrah, and therefore we're still pretty bullish about how this year is going to go. Yeah, I've seen mixed reports on that, too. Some suggesting, and we've seen, as you say, a dramatic spike in the last two or three weeks, especially with Omicron, but some experts are saying it's going to go down as quickly as it's gone up. Uh, I'd like to think so. I'm not sure sure what they're basing that on. But one of the offshoots of that, though, of course, is, is absenteeism. We talked about this earlier in the healthcare sector, but it's also happening in, in, in the commercial and retail sector, isn't it? I mean, if, if somebody is, is testing positive in a store, uh, do you want to go to work with them the next day? Well, or, or do we want them exposing our customers? And so, again, yeah. the answer is no. If you test, the same thing as if you'd had flu or a cold, sure. if you're not well, stay home. And if you're tested positive, stay home, go through the quarantine, go through those procedures. And so that causes a lot of stress, especially in smaller businesses that would prefer to plan three, four, five months ahead. And instead, what they're doing is maybe being able to plan three, four, five days ahead. Uh, who knows what next week's going to bring? And, and you know, it's easy for me to say that, but if you're living through this, it is very, very wearing. It creates a lot of stress because I really don't know even what this weekend is going to look like. And here we are at Monday of this week. Who's going to be available? Who can work? Who can't work? Um, and so, yeah, this continues to be stressful. But if I take the longer view of it, if we are starting to get on top of this disease, then we can return to normal. And, and so I think, Bill, not to try to short circuit any of this conversation at all, I think the big news story of 2022 is going to be interest rates. Um, the Bank of Canada has taken interest rates down to their lowest level ever, 0.25%. That has led to the lowest mortgage rates in Canadian history. You can get a multi-year mortgage in the 2% range to 2.5% range. But that's not going to last. I don't think they're going to move the rate in January, but I am expecting in 2022 three quarter-point rate hikes. means the Bank of Canada rate by the end of this year will be 1%. That means mortgages will be uh, in the 3% range, still historically very, very low. When I bought my first house in the late 1980s, I paid 11 and a quarter percent. Today, that seems unbelievable. If you were unfortunate enough to buy a home in the early 1980s, you might have paid 18, 19, 20 percent. So three and a I half. I was there. Three and a half may not be that bad, but nonetheless, I think interest rates are going to be the biggest story. And and uh, just while I'm blabbing about this for a second, the question is going to be what impact those higher rates have on the housing market, which I think is also going to be the second biggest story of 2022. Well, you read my mind because I was just going to ask you about that because certainly one dovetails into the other. Uh, the housing market remains red hot. I know the numbers are down a little bit, but prices are just still off the map here. Uh, if there is an interest rate hike or three, as you're predicting, maybe over the course of 2022, is that going to cool the market? Well, this is what the hope is. Now, let's also understand what the word cool means. Uh, there is nobody setting policy in Ottawa that wants to see housing prices fall 10% in 2022, that's the kind of thing that would trigger a recession for sure. So the best case scenario, the one that everyone's hoping for, is kind of a freeze, that rather than housing prices going up 25%, which is what the average house in Canada did in the last year, 
that maybe we'd get a year where housing prices are either going up at the rate of 0% or maybe 1% or 2 or 3%, which allows us all to take sort of a deep breath and get you know, uh, back to normal, if you will, rather than seeing this rise. Having said that to you, Bill, I don't think the freeze is going to happen immediately. In other words, look for the housing market to still remain quite hot in January, February, even March. That's driven uh, mostly because of supply problems. So we've got this demand. We still have this demand of people looking for housing. We haven't been able to increase the supply. And also people saying, well, if they're going to start raising these interest rates, excuse me, in March or April, maybe we'd better get out there now. So I suspect we're still going to see some heat in the first quarter, but the hope is that in the second, third, fourth quarter, we could begin to see some freezing in this market. Prices not going down, but also prices not going up, so we can all kind of play catch-up. And I know governments have kind of, you know, paid lip service to this and saying they're going to allocate more money for housing. Uh, the federal government has anyway. Uh, but that's not going to get billed overnight. I mean, it's, it's going to take a long time. And, and the experts are telling us that even with the money that, that they have committed to this, it's not going to come anywhere near solving the supply crisis. Well, no, absolutely. So first off, we don't know what they're going to do. Christia Freeland in December gave us her mid-year economic update uh, for the 2021-2022 fiscal year and was asked at that time, what are you going to do about housing? She says, I'm going to wait until I bring down the budget, which says any announcement from the federal government will be March or April of this year, even if they were to to throw money at this, and I'm not sure throwing money is the right answer, but that would take a while to percolate. So we're not going to see that at any time soon. What we might see, if you're again listening to us and you're a potential first-time home buyer who's looking at million-dollar homes and saying, how do I even get into this market? I am suspecting that, again, in March or April, the government's going to do a little something for first-time home buyers and try to come up with a program that's going to allow people to do this. Now, that's not new. They have existing programs for first-time home buyers, but given how fast the prices went up, they don't actually work anymore because the sort of the limit on the government spending, what have you, is too low for the housing market as it is today. So they're going to correct it, and there will be a little help there. But if you already have one house and you're trying to build a little empire with your second or third or fourth house, don't expect any government support for that. Okay, let's talk about one of the other factors they mentioned in the Financial Post, and I think it's a very important one, uh, is household savings. I remember a year or so ago, you and I had this conversation that said, look, once we got out of this, this wave, I think it was the second one we were, we were in by then, we've got all this disposable income because they haven't been able to go anywhere, haven't been able to go to restaurants, so we're going to go out there and spend it, and it's going to really give a boost to the economy. Uh, I don't know that anybody really accounted for inflation, uh, Marvin, and that's certainly been a uh, the black cloud that's hung over an awful lot of this. Prices have gone up considerably. And that has an impact on household savings. If we don't have it, we can't spend it. Right. So there's a, there's a couple of related items here. First, why is inflation so high? Well, part of that is people going out and spending money. And so demand shot up. We had the supply chain problems. And what businesses do at that point, if there's higher demand and you don't get more supply, you raise prices. So we've seen this temporary inflation because consumer demand was going up. Uh, household savings, yes, we, we did that during the worst of COVID because what could I spend money on? I couldn't travel. I, you know, I, I had to lock down. I couldn't eat restaurant meals. So everyone saved the money and they brought their debt load down. But we have just seen a relatively healthy Christmas. Now, what does that mean? 
2021 Christmas season was better than 2020, not quite as good as 2019, but people have fallen back into their old habits of spending money. And of course, this month, the, the credit card bills come home to roost. So people are, are out uh, dipping down those, those savings from there. We think, again, when you take the COVID restrictions off, people are going to spend. And we also think, and to your point around inflation, that this is still a, a transitory thing. Now, initially when you say that word, people hope it's going to be two months, three months. It's actually turning into the better part of 10 months, 11 months, but we still think by the end of the first quarter of this year, we're going to see those things come down. We've also had a promise from OPEC that they're going to turn the taps on a little bit more and release more oil. That should bring the price of a barrel of oil down from where it is today, flirting with $80 a barrel, probably into the more like $60 a barrel range for the rest of this year. So when you put those two things together, I think the inflationary pressure is going to go down, uh, but I do think people are going to uh, use their purse springs. And, and think of it this way, Bill, uh, call it a, a COVID dividend or a COVID gift. You know, I've survived after two years, so I'm going to treat myself too fill in the blank, uh, whether it's something small like a new shirt or a new pair of pants, or I'm going to treat myself to a new car or a trip abroad. I think consumers are going to get, want to give themselves a dividend for surviving COVID whenever we can declare an end to it. So those pressures uh, uh, in terms of spending are going to be great news for our economy, but hopefully the inflation is going to fall back more in the 2 to 3% range, not, not hit the 4.5% we've seen the last couple of months. All right. What about gearing back up for this economy right now? And I guess this is all under the guise of productivity. I mean, we've heard a number of businesses are having problems right now filling positions. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people just don't want to come back. Others can't come back. Others have got other jobs. Uh, that has an impact on productivity. If you had a workforce of 200 and you're only getting 100 people there, uh, you know, math tells me that you're not producing as much as you can. Uh, is, is this going to be a problem going forward or is this just an aberration? Well, um, again, my crystal ball is no clearer on this than yours, but what we believe, what we believe is that this is a temporary thing, again, caused by the ins and outs and ups and downs of, of COVID, that when we can get to some some normal uh uh, whether that's a new normal or closer to the old normal, some of this should go away. Probably, again, not in the first quarter of this year, but assuming no greater variance, we should be able to get back. We're thinking productivity may go up. That is a big question mark. Many people have been working from home, and our studies over the last year and a half of working from home says that most people were fairly productive working from home, that there was no big productivity hit there. The productivity hits that we faced. One was around supply chains. So again, it's hard to sell cars if they're all parked somewhere waiting for computer chips to arrive or uh, you know, if a boat hasn't delivered a shipment of something, uh, we're out of stock and we can't do anything about it. Those problems are going away as well. So we, we think on balance this year should be pretty good, assuming again we take COVID out of the equation and we can get back to normal. But that is remains the wild card for all of us. In the past, uh, we've relied on immigration to fill some of those gaps. Uh, yep. You know, the skilled, talented to come from other countries, settle here, uh, raise families, start businesses in many situations. Immigration's down because of COVID. Is that going to be a factor here? Well, yes. And so let's talk about that in a couple of ways, Bill. Uh, Canada remains a country that the rest of the world would love to live in. To give you a sense of it, the target of uh, of immigration, the number of people we want to bring into the company, into the country, excuse me, every year is in the range of around 300,000. 
we have a waiting list at Canadian embassies around the world that total more than 900,000 people who want to come here. But we were not uh, rapidly processing those applications because of the COVID issue, you know, vaccination issues, and what have you. If we can get to the right side of this, then the question is, are we going to try to eat into that backlog? In other words, bring in more than 300,000 people, uh, or are we just going to say, okay, we can go back to the normal rate of bringing people in? I I can't quite tell you which minister it was in the uh, Justin Trudeau government, but just about a week ago announced that he would like to, and this is just him speaking, this was not government policy necessarily, he would like to bring them in a little faster to eat into that backlog to make up. Now, just to be clear to your listeners, we're not talking here about refugees or people who are facing some other kind of hardship in the world. This is just the regular flow of immigrants, the people who have to demonstrate that they have unique skill sets, that they're prepared to bring cash into the country, they're prepared to invest in the country. But that still remains strong, and it's one of the reasons why when we look at... um, population growth in Ontario, we still believe that places like Hamilton and Mississauga are going to grow by, you know, 30, 40 percent over the next 15, 20 years, because uh, when people come here, good or bad, immigrants are not attracted to Sudbury. They're not attracted to Sault Ste. Marie or Thunder Bay. They want to go where the people already are, and so that means more growth in Brampton, Mississauga, Toronto, yes, Hamilton, uh, London, those sorts of major urban centers. So, um, uh, assuming we can, can, again, get COVID in the rearview mirror, I think we're going to get back to regular amounts of immigration, which, by the way, is great. And I realize there are people listening to us who probably got mixed feelings on this, but we need to keep a certain, we call population pyramid. We can't have a situation where less than half the people are working to provide benefits to more than half the population who are, let's say, shall we say, retired. To do this correctly, we need to have more people working than we have retirees. And there's this massive wave of baby boomers born between 1946 and 1964 who are who are approaching retirement years this could really upset the apple cart with old age security what have you if we don't bring in fresh people below and we're just not having children uh covid birth rates even though we're all stuck at home with each other we haven't seen a big baby boom because of that and so immigration is the way we address the population pyramid I know we're just about out of time, but this is not a uniquely Canadian problem, is it? I mean, I know the Americans are looking at a similar situation here. Anyone in the developed world, Bill, so this is a European problem. Every major country in Europe is facing this. The one odd thing, though, is that in terms of when you ask people where they would like to live in the world, Canada comes up pretty close to the top. They, uh, The world pays attention to some of these rating systems that say that Canada is a pretty good place to be. And uh, so... Uh, I don't I don't want to blame Donald Trump, but there's still a bit of a Donald Trump hangover in the United States where people saw how quickly some American society began to devolve a bit. They're saying, we didn't see that in Canada. Hmm. So uh, I, I think this all is good news for us, again, assuming we can get COVID in that rearview mirror. Exactly. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for this. Great to get your perspective on all this. Glad to be with you. Take care. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about supply chains and about vaccinations. And yeah, they are tied together. We've been repeatedly told that vaccination is the key factor in getting us past the pandemic. So what effect is it going to have if it became mandatory? Well, as Global's Brianna Carnegie tells us, the federal health minister says he likes this option. 
Jean-Yves Duclos thinks we will reach the point of mandatory vaccination. However, it's ultimately up to the provinces to make that call. What we see now is that our healthcare system in Canada is fragile. Our people are tired. And the only way that we know to go through COVID-19, this variant and any future variant is through vaccination. The federal health minister says measures like testing, masking and social distancing are also useful tools, but they on their own won't end the pandemic. Duclos says he's signaling this conversation as it's one he believes the provinces and territories in support with the federal government will want to have over the next weeks and months. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. And I fully support that. I understand exactly where they're coming from. But there are some concerns and some aberrations that we have to talk about here. And one of them is a federal policy uh, that is going to require vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers. Now, there has been some exemption to that. And, of course, we know that the border has always been open to commercial traffic, even in the worst days of the pandemic. And you might argue that we're still going through the worst days because of the importance of of commerce. But if they do go through with this uh, vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers, What's that going to do to the, to the well, for instance, the supply chain problems that we're already uh, seeing right now? What's it going to do to pricing? Uh, I'm going to bring Stephen Laskowski into the program. Stephen is the president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance. Uh, Stephen, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us today. Thanks for having me on again. There's, there's a little bit of me that's conflicted here because I understand totally about the vaccinations and how important they are. And I think we all understand that. I think about 90% of Canadians are on that page. But... The problem we've got here is I'm looking at things like supply chain, empty shelves in the stores already. Uh, As you and I have talked about in the past, Steve, if if it's on a shelf in a store, it got there by truck uh, in some way, shape or form. uh, This is an integral part of the economy. What will this vaccine mandate do to that supply chain and to to what's going to be happening with cross-border traffic? Sure, Bill. I'll I'll answer that question. But I just want to, for your listeners' benefit... We support the health minister's uh, drive towards vaccinations, and we completely support uh, his calling for uh, vaccines as the best tool in the toolbox. There's no question about it. But the reality is that we still have a certain percentage of Canadians, all Canadians, who have vaccine hesitancy. I believe now we're at, uh, in the mid, uh, mid-80s for uh, double vaccination rate in Canada, uh, and some provinces and regions are lower. And that phenomenon that's happening in Canada in the province, provinces are happening in the trucking industry. So the vast majority of, trucking, of, of truck drivers are vaccinated. We're talking about probably an exit rate of 10 to 15 percent of the 120,000 Canadian truck drivers, as you rightfully pointed out, that have worked throughout the pandemic. Uh, and quite frankly, our industry, especially in the truck driving occupation, has had an extremely low penetration of of COVID. And that's due to vaccine rates, uh, public health measures that we've worked with to implement, as well as their own management. And the fact of the the matter is, is that uh, as a truck driving profession, especially on long haul, it's very um, isolationist in nature. You can go for a couple of days before you actually need or or want to talk to someone or or deal with them physically. With regards to the supply chain, 70% of Canada-US trade moves by truck. There's not an aspect of the economy uh, that uh, is not impacted by this mandate. And what will happen is that 10 to 15 percent figure will land in certain sectors more than others. So while certain uh, segments of the economy 
will have little to no impact. Others will have more. And so, uh, you know, as we entered into uh, the pandemic, we had a driver shortage. In March of 2020, uh, we were short 20, close to 20,000 people to move trucks. So that's, that's 20,000 trucks that we needed on the road that we couldn't have. Now we're talking about at a minimum of 12 to 15,000 people leaving the cross-border uh, trade industry. This is going to be a problem. And, and not only that, uh, I, I emphasize, I know we can only deal so much today, we're going to have to deal with compliance. So how compliance begins uh, on Saturday uh, with regards to the vaccinated, proving that they're vaccinated, is also going to lead to very significant challenges at the border in the coming days if we don't plan this properly. You touched on something that uh, you and I talked about before Christmas, and it's still a problem. As a matter of fact, there's some concern that it's going to be a bigger problem, and that's the number of people leaving the industry uh, for a variety of reasons. And and we, that, we, that was even in the news, Stephen. Of course, as you know, uh, because of the horrific weather, now it's flooding in British Columbia. It used to be the, the wildfires a few months ago. Uh, supply chain has been interrupted there, but both the Premier and the Prime Minister have talked about the fact that even if they fix the highway today, that's not going to be done that fast. Uh, there aren't enough people in trucks right now to be able to get products to and from the market right now. This is a growing problem in your industry. Yes. And, you know, I think that's an example, if I could digress just a little bit off that question, Bill, is that, you know, the government of Canada really stepped up during that crisis to work with our industry to get the flow of goods uh, from the rest of Canada to BC when you couldn't go over the mountains. And how did we do that? We worked as an industry and as a supply chain with Canada, United States to, without going into the minutia of trucking, what's called in transit to allow Canadian trucks to go through the United States to make a domestic move. And we did that by working together, identifying a problem and dealing with it. And that's what we've been uh, from the get-go with this mandate. It wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when this mandate gets applied. We need to deal with enforcement. We need to deal with a very fragile supply chain, which we all see. So what we wanted to do with both governments is work through this in the same manner we work with dealing with the crisis in BC to land in a a spot that deals with all factors. This is going, and I'm going back, I mean, we know about the importance of trucking. We've talked about that at the beginning of our conversation. And and there there almost is not a border between Canada and the U.S. There never has been. I mean, I, I, I understand technically there is. But the, the cross-border traffic has been such a, a key part of the economy. I, when I was growing up as a kid, I had a, an uncle who was a truck driver. He actually lived in Cleveland. Uh, but he used to talk about the fact that he said, I lived in the south end of Hamilton at the time. He says, I probably go buy your house more than a lot of your friends do uh, between <laughs> Toronto. Uh, well, because that route from Detroit all the way to Buffalo. Uh, and the, the, the number of car or trucks rather that go between these two countries, uh, I, I think people would be astounded, really, Steve, to understand just how much cross-border traffic there is. Yeah, and, and how much it touches all of our personal and business lives. And, and that's really the issue here. Uh, the issue is the exit of the drivers. The issue is the enforcement of, of this policy and how it will impact border flow and how that will impact our everyday lives. I think one of uh, the, uh, the, the things that have been achieved through this COVID crisis in terms of from an information basis is the understanding of more Canadians of exactly how our supply chains work and how important truck drivers, the trucking industry, and members of the supply chain are, are is getting 
various products to your home or to your business. And, and that's really what we have been working on over the last six to eight weeks with the government of Canada, the United States. And I must add, uh, our customers, this will have an impact on the trucking industry, but it's not a trucking industry issue. It's a supply chain issue. And many of our customers and associations have been getting involved in this issue to caution the implementation of this mandate in January. The system, and, and we can talk about this, I guess, in two uh, planes here, uh, Steve. One is pre-vaccine. As we mentioned, the, the border was still open to cross-border traffic through commercial traffic because of the importance to the economy. But we've had vaccines for a little more than a year now on this side of the border anyway. Was the system before what's going to be implemented on Saturday, was it working? I mean, I, I, I don't remember or recall any stories of any huge outbreaks uh, among the trucking industry. Uh, I, I, I wish everybody was going to get vaccinated, but that's an unrealistic expectation. That's just not going to happen. Uh, but there was testing, there was masking that was going on and still goes on, of course, in that industry for both American and Canadian drivers. Uh, was it an effective system? I mean, notwithstanding the pressures because of COVID, uh, was it working? So prior to the vaccine uh, mandate, or probably the availability of vaccines, pardon me, um, what we what we saw and governments did, there was a pilot project in, in Alberta, Ontario, in the Maritimes, uh, various, uh, various uh, focuses, but they focused primarily on, on the trucking industry. And what they found was the penetration of COVID during these uh, pilot projects and the testing of truck drivers, that there was zero or next to zero penetration of COVID in our industry amongst the long haul truck drivers. And that's still going on today. We surveyed our members over Christmas. I mean, this new variant is highly contagious. We all know that it's a fact. Uh, but we asked our members with regards to the long haul drivers, if there's been a change in the penetration of COVID uh, from the past. And the answer is no. Why? Well, to go back to the earlier point, the vast majority are vaccinated and those uh, and, and along with the vaccinated, unvaccinated have implemented various measures to protect themselves from COVID as well as the nature of the job, because it's not like you are with a lot of people on a daily basis. Well, what I've heard anecdotally from some people in the industry to that point is even those who are unvaccinated, uh, whether it's vaccine hesitancy or it could be any number of different reasons, I suppose, uh, are still being compliant with the other protocols, whether it's mask wearing or et cetera, uh, which I guess is one of the reasons why, as you said, the numbers are almost infinitesimal. There's nothing going on within the industry, uh, which begs the question, why is the government targeting this industry all of a sudden when it seems to be working the way things are going? So, you know, the, the question on an entry exit issue of the border is, is more complicated. We're seeing uh, entry exit requirements around the globe uh, nationally dealing with this. And hence our issue of timing. If the risks are low, uh, but that is the nature of entry exit around the world, work with us on a more suitable date that is less disruptive to the supply chain, lets us develop a system of compliance and also allows a, some more time for a low risk industry with very few options. We have no drivers to replace these drivers leaving that are very dependent upon moving a very fragile supply chain. We think we made a very factual uh, uh, argument. We think the data is there in front of us, but the governments need to use that information and apparently have made a decision that they are going to move on 
uh, with the mandate, despite the information that uh, has been put before them. I don't know if you're about to, uh, to watch the Sunday political shows. Uh, being a political junkie, I tend to do that. But yesterday, uh, Dr. Fauci uh, was on, I guess, a couple of them, and basically saying that, look, at, he's under the impression, uh, based on the data that he's looked at right now, that these Omicron spikes are probably going to drop significantly by the end of this month. In other words, within the next two, two and a half weeks. Uh, and if that is the case, uh, it begs the question, why are we moving so quickly on this? Uh, I, I get the suggestion, the idea here, Stephen, that what you guys are asking is, look, hit, pause this somewhere. Let's see what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. Uh, it seems to be a problem or a solution, rather, for a problem that doesn't really exist right now in the trucking industry. So really what we're saying, and it was even before the rise of this variant, is we understand that governments are moving in a different direction towards entry exit requirements that may involve, that will involve, pardon me, that's already happened, uh, around health issues. We understand that. The issue here becomes not a question of if, but when. Uh, the, fr- the supply chain is fragile. Everyone's recognized it. Governments on both sides of the border have recognized it. Governments on both sides of the border, in particular in Canada, have worked with us very collegially over the last two years and understand the statements that you and I have been talking about with regards to the low penetration of, of COVID amongst the long-haul driver community. And we also understand that we need that border to function properly. So if we're moving towards this, we need a system of compliance that is seamless. So with all of those factors, let's work together amongst the trucking industry and the supply chain to pick a date of enforcement for this rule that makes more sense for the supply chain and the health and safety of Canadians, all factors. Do you have a date in mind, a ballpark idea? So, you know, uh, what we suggested to people, because, you know, you need different uh, facets of not just the trucking industry, and not just where they're located, but the customers they serve. So if we are going to remove a certain percentage of truck drivers down the road, we need to understand how the supply chain can adjust to that. Uh, you know, Canadian and American businesses are some of the best businesses in the world, including in the trucking sector. Given enough time to plan and prepare and emerge from a very fragile state, what would you're into, into a, a state of normal or a new normal, we can develop that that time, but it, right now, everyone in, is, is in agreement in the trucking sector and many parts of the supply chain that now is not the time. Well, uh, you've been very vocal about this, and uh, I, I, know, I know government hears you. I just whether or not they're listening, I guess, is another matter. Uh, we're certainly going to follow this story over the next little while, anyway. Stephen, I appreciate you taking some time to join us today to uh, shed some light on this. Uh, here's so hoping that we can have a discussion in the next couple of days about uh, a solution that's going to be comparable and, and, and it's going to be compatible with everybody in, uh, in light of what's going on with the economy and, as you say, with the, the virus itself. Thanks so much for this today, Steve. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Stephen Laskowski, president of the Canadian Trucking Alliance, uh, with their take on what's going on. And as you mentioned, this coming weekend... Uh, is when this is supposed to go into play, and there's a lot of concern within the industry, and not just with the truckers themselves, but as Stephen mentioned, also uh, uh, grocery stores, department stores, things of place nature. They don't want to get into supply chain issues once again, exacerbated by empty shelves and and panic buying and all sorts of other things that could result. And I'm not suggesting it's necessarily going to get that way, 
But if the product's not getting to the shelves, uh, people start to get a little anxious. And I can understand that too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.